All right, go ahead and turn to John chapter 9. This is our second of three Sundays in John chapter 9. And if you recall, last week we talked about Jesus healing this blind man who had been blind from birth. And um, this week, and, and he had a discussion with his disciples about who caused the man, why, why was the man blind? And Jesus said it was to display the works of God in his life. And then he healed, he healed him by putting mud on his eyes and sending him on a walk down to the pool of Siloam. So this week we're going to see the outworking of this miracle, starting in verse 8. And so it has a ripple effect through the immediate surroundings there in Jerusalem. And we're going to see um, just how this, this thing works out. So I'll just, I'm going to go and read the whole passage, starting in verse 8 through 34. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But now, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, 
God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. So as in many situations where Jesus is involved, there's sort of a heightening of the intensity of this scene. So it starts out as a moment between Jesus and this man who is a beggar. He's in the street. He's never been able to see. He's, he's been without light his whole life. And after he's healed, it, it triggers this cascade of events that begins with those who are nearest to him, who know him, who are regulars in the community. And so we're going we're gonna to look at this. I, this. This section of the story plays out in sort of four parts, I think. The verses 8 through 12, we see the neighbors kind of picking up on this man's healing. And then in verses 13 through 17, this man is questioned by the Pharisees, but it's not necessarily a hostile questioning yet. Then in 18 through 23, they get a little deeper into the mystery of this guy's healing when they talk to his parents. And they get some testimony about the beggar who's been healed. And then in verses 24 through 34, there's a, there's a full-on conflict. There's an argument, a debate. that You can tell that it's not friendly as the issue of who Jesus is, as seen in this healing, comes to the forefront and can't be denied anymore. So let's start in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the guy? And, and some people said, uh, yeah, it's him. And others said, no, it's somebody, somebody who looks like him, right? But he was saying, it is, it's me. I'm the man. I'm that guy. I'm the one who was begging just this morning, and now I'm healed. So one of the things that is so interesting about this is I, I, I really believe, thinking about this all week, I really believe that this is a good analogy for salvation. When somebody has a genuine encounter with Jesus, this is a sort of change that, that you Sometimes, see, I've, I feel like the, the, the level of change that you should expect. Some people will say, yeah, it's the same guy. I mean, it looks like him. And other people will say, no, he's a totally different person, right? When you have a genuine encounter with Jesus, it changes you. Just like it has changed, changed this man. And, and in his case, he has a, this physical, drastic revolution in the way that he's going to live his life. Well, isn't that true of anybody who meets Jesus? There's a revolution. There's changes in the way that you're going to live from now on. You don't live as a beggar. You don't live as a blind person. You live as somebody who's healed, somebody who's met Jesus. And he has been healed and he can see now. And so they said to him, how were your eyes opened? This is the right question, right? How, how were you healed? Well, it's kind of the right question. Um, when you think about it, they want to know, they're curious and they want to know how you were healed. Even better question would be who healed you, right? Then it's actually, he answers both of those questions and he answers the who first. Look at his answer. The man called Jesus. They didn't ask for a name. You notice that? They said, how were your eyes open? How is it that you can see? And he didn't start with the mud in the pool, he started with the man called Jesus. He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go, go to Siloam and wash. 
So I went and washed and received my sight. So he does tell them how it happened, but first he tells them who. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. And I think when he says, I do not know, I don't know where he is. I think that means that when he came back with his eyesight, Jesus wasn't there anymore. You think about it? This means that he hasn't even seen Jesus yet. He hasn't even seen him yet, but he's heard the name. And it's the name that he tells to, the, to his neighbors. You see that? He's heard his name, but he hasn't seen him yet. He's going to see him soon, but he hasn't yet. The man called Jesus. And what I want to encourage you this morning, how I want to encourage you with this, is that it's not enough. When Jesus gets a hold of you and he changes you, it's really not enough to just say, oh, I'm just so blessed. Think about it. If this man had, if this man had talked the way a lot of people talk now about their religious experiences, he might have said something like, oh, yeah, you know, I put, there was mud on my face, so I washed it off, and then I could see. I'm just so blessed to have my eyesight. Think about that. Is that what he does? No, he says, the man called Jesus. He gives them the name Don't pull up short of naming Jesus. Don't stop until you tell people who has healed you, who has changed you. You see that? But there's something else here that I think is really interesting. And that is that Jesus, just the fact that Jesus isn't here. Where is he? Well, I don't know. He's, He's... probably off helping somebody else, right? But, it, but you would think that maybe after healing this man, I mean, we know from last week, from, from looking at this, we know that this is what Jesus wanted. He wanted this man to become a public display of the works of God. You remember that? He wanted his healing to be public and he wanted to cause a stir. He wanted people to see and to ask, He wanted this to be a sign of his identity as the Messiah. And it works, but then he's not there. And why is that? Because no other, I can't think of a a person in our day and age who would, you know, a few great, great faith healers, so to speak, who draw attention to themselves, they would never leave before they've received the attention of the crowd. Does that make sense? But Jesus does. And not only that, but by leaving in this particular moment, in a really curious way, he entrusts his reputation to this beggar. Right? He, he turns over the stage to this man who is uneducated, couldn't provide for himself until an hour ago, couldn't even make his way around the city very well. And this is the man who's now going to represent Jesus in front of the Jewish leaders. So Jesus being gone is significant. He's, he is, he's made this man a testimony. And now he's going to let the man tell his testimony and speak for him. 
So they brought to the Pharisees, in verse 13, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And if there's anything going on on Saturday in Jerusalem, the Pharisees know about it, right? If it's Saturday and someone's making mud and healing people, well, you're going to have to have an uncomfortable conversation with the Pharisees. So they again asked him, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. So some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. And there is such an incredible division. You can see that they're so disorganized in their approach to this situation. They were not ready for this. And you can see that in the fact that they actually turn to this man and they go, what do you say about him? That was a mistake, right? And so we get, the first, we get the first glimpse of what's happening in this man's heart. I mean, so far, he's just told the facts. The man called Jesus, made mud, put it on my eyes. I washed it off and I can see. Now he says, he gives his first opinion of Jesus, which is verse 17, he is a prophet, which is a good start right? He's saying, this man's special. Prophets were incredibly special and important people. And if he's saying he's a prophet, he's saying, well, he's not just an ordinary man. And he's not just some kind of healer. He's a prophet. And that means prophets spoke for God. And so he's saying, well, he at least speaks for God. I know that much because of what he did to me, right? So verse 18 The Jews didn't believe that he had been blind and received his sight. They thought that this was some kind of scam, right? They didn't really buy it until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you claim was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. And there it is, right? There can be no question anymore that this man is who he said and was blind. In fact, if you remember um, how many witnesses, how many witnesses were the minimum to establish a fact legally in front of, uh, of, a, of a jury or, you remember, two? It was two or three, but two is the bare minimum. We have a father and a mother. We have two witnesses saying to these people, yeah, he was blind. He was blind when he was born, right? And so there's no doubt anymore. There can be no doubt. So with all of the doubt removed, what that means is that from a legal standpoint, and just, I mean, the community is convinced also, but from a legal standpoint, it's been proven that he was blind and now he's not. So the miracle actually has legal proof at this point. So what happens? Would you, would, you expect, would you expect these parents to rejoice? I would, right? Think about this. Think about the day you've been, you've been waiting for nine months for your baby to come. And your baby comes, it's a healthy boy, takes a few months, but you start to notice he doesn't respond to light. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to notice movement. 
right? You start to notice when he's six months old, nine months old, this kid can't, he really can't see. He's blind. Can you imagine the grief that would come? Imagine, imagine that happening in a society without any kind of, without any kind of provisions for, disa- for disabled people, for blind people. There's no braille in this world. These people, this man and this woman, knew better than anybody what it meant when they first noticed that their baby boy couldn't see, and they've been living with that all this time. Where is their celebration? Why aren't they celebrating this? Well, we're told in verse 22, it's one long parenthetical statement, which just means that John steps out of the story and he's, tell, he's gonna say something to us now, to the reader. That's why there's a parenthetical there. It says, uh, by the way, you, when you see a parenthetical statement, you can just insert the words, by the way. It says, by the way, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So there it is. If they believed the gospel, they would lose their religious status. They had a lot to lose in their community, socially and religiously. They would lose a huge part of their identity as Jewish people if they were excommunicated from fellowship with the rest of the community. And it was, it was a serious threat. I don't think we, I think in, in 2023 in Southern California, it's really hard for us to appreciate what excommunication has meant to certain groups of people down through history. If they're put out of the synagogue, they don't have a place to worship. I mean, this is very similar to what it would be like to be a Catholic in a town that only has a Catholic chapel. If you're excommunicated, good luck. There is no religious community for you at that point. And that's what they're facing, and they're afraid. And they're afraid there's this threat looming over them. And so instead of celebrating their son, they choose to hang on to their religious status, and they pass up the opportunity to celebrate, to enter into his healing with him. And they decline that opportunity, which I think is a tragedy. But there's something even, there's something even more basic than that going on here, which I want to point out to you. Look back at verse 18. It says that, it says that the, the Jewish leaders, they didn't believe that the man had been born blind and that he received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and talked to them. It says they didn't believe until which means that after that, they bought it. They believed it. They knew that they couldn't disprove it. And the parents themselves know better than anyone that this is true. But neither one of them are thinking about the miracle. You catch that? They're not, they're not, they don't seem to be impressed. They don't seem to be impressed at all that a blind man can see. What is wrong? It's, you know what it is? You can, you can see them going blind in real time, can't you? Going blind to what really matters. One group because they're only concerned about discrediting Jesus and the other group because they're concerned about hanging on to their religious status. And in the grip of those, those agendas, they are losing their ability to see 
what is really happening right in front of them. And so this doesn't make anything any better. In fact, it makes it more complicated. And so for the second time in verse 24, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, which is an epithet. It means that it means something along the lines of, we know you're lying. They're, they're, they're invoking God's name now. They're putting him under oath, kind of. It's a, it's a hostile way of putting someone under oath. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now look at his answer. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. We're going to sing Amazing Grace after this because that line is in the first verse of Amazing Grace. You guys remember that? This is one of the sweetest, simplest, most beautiful testimonies in the Bible. And when he says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. I don't think he's leaving open the possibility that Jesus is a sinner. I think what he means is that, that to him, this is a frivolous question. It's a frivolous question. You're, you're accusing this man of sinning? He healed my blindness. What more do you need? We're going to debate. We're going to debate Sabbath regulations. He healed me and I can see. It's frivolous, right? One thing that I do know. That though I was blind, now I see. And we'll follow this. He gets feisty after this. And we'll follow it through to the end. But I want to stop here. And I want to look at, at I just want to look at one thing, I, one thing I do know. One thing I know means that in my heart, something has happened that means more to me than all the other events in my life combined. One thing I know, there's more, there's more information, there is more power, there's more eternity in one thing I know than an entire theological library or a lifetime full of sermons. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. And keep this scene in mind as I read this because... I want you to picture the contrast between this man who's, I mean, he's a, he's a nobody socially. The only reason he's talking to these people is because something incredible has happened in his life. He probably still has like some mud in his hair. He's still wearing his beggar's clothes and he's in front of this assembly of the most educated, most respected, most powerful men in Jerusalem, Right? Picture the contrast. This isn't just like, this isn't a man among his peers, right? This is a nobody 
standing in front of all of the somebodies in the city. And then Paul writes this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you hear it? Doesn't that seem like it's almost a commentary on this story? Saying God chose what is foolish and weak and low and despised. Like a blind beggar, he, that's who he chose. And then he stands him up in front of the strong and the wise to shame them, to shame them. And how does he shame them? One thing I know, you can't take that away from me. You can't take it away. This is this man's testimony and it cannot be disputed. It cannot be debated. It can't be destroyed. Jesus has put something in his heart that's as clear and as hard as a diamond. And that's his one thing I know. And by the way, what this, why this should matter to us as believers is that it's not, it is not easy to share the gospel with somebody. And I feel like it gets even, it gets even more complicated when in our hearts we feel like we, we need to have something prepared. At least I felt that way for years. I still kind of feel that lingering. I, I, have to, I have to have a strategy. I have to anticipate, well, if I present the gospel to this person and then, and then they say this, I need to be prepared to answer that question. But then there's five or six other possible ways they could come back and I need to be prepared to answer those. And before you know it, I'm just, I'm just not going to share the gospel. Anyone relate to that? Listen, you don't have to preach. I'm preaching. You don't have to. I've prepared all week to do this. You don't have to do that. All you need is a one thing I know. And then all you need to say is whatever that one thing I know is. And if you don't know what that might be, ask God, pray about it. Ask God, how... how should I finish the sentence? One thing I know. What's the rest of your story? Because there is where the power is. Okay? Not in your strategy, not in your parliamentary debate. It's right there in one thing I know. And we see this too, because with the contrast in mind between this man who's nothing, he's nothing. He's the bottom rung of the social ladder. And he's standing there in front of these men that he just ought to be 
intimidated by and completely silenced by. And what happens next? Does he shut up? No, he doesn't. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And then they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, and they're probably trying to trap him even further into saying, well, he did it this way. And then they'd be able to say, look, point A, point B, point C. Here's how he broke the Sabbath. That's what they're doing. And he says, he says, uh, actually, it's a lot of fun reading his responses. It's very satisfying. He answered them, I already told you that. Why do you want to hear it again? You're going to become his disciples too? That's, that's feisty. He's, he, so he, but listen, it's easy, it's easy to, it's easy to read that and chuckle and go, yeah, get him. Um, but don't lose, don't lose sight of the fact that he should not be feeling this confident. If you've, if you've ever been, if you've ever stood in front of people that you really respect, people that even more, even more than people you respect, people that your entire community respect. These are like highly honored men in this community. He should not be quite this confident. And the reason is because Jesus has, has given him this unity in the middle of his heart to speak from. So you want to become his disciples too? And they reviled him. Now they're just outright insulting him, and they say, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. That's a claim to, we're, we're the establishment. You can't argue with us. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why? <laughs> That's incredible. You guys are the best informed body of authorities in this city, and you don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. He's pointing out their ignorance. This man can heal the blind and you don't know who he is? What are you doing? How do you, how, how do you call yourselves the leaders of the Jews if you don't know who this guy is? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And there it is. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. But he's done it to me and I'm standing in front of you. <coughs> And they, they insult his mother and they put him out. They excommunicate him. They actually do the thing to him that his parents were afraid of happening to them. Right? They put him out of the synagogue. And I want to close with this because I believe this is, this is also a word for us today. They put him out of the synagogue. And that means that he no longer has a place to worship. That means that he's lost, for whatever it was worth, he's lost his religious status. But you know what he traded it for? His eyesight. That's a pretty good trade. But that's not all. So they excommunicate him from their synagogue, from religious fellowship. They put him out. But you know what? He's free now. And he can see. And 
he's out in the one place where he's most likely to encounter Jesus. There's no Jesus in the synagogue. It wouldn't allow it, not at this point. And one thing this means is that in religious establishments, which just means churches, in churches where people are standing on their own righteousness, that's not a place where anyone's going to encounter Jesus. So they put him out back on the street. Well, he's from the street. That's okay. And now he can see. And you know what he's about to see? And you know who he's about to worship? Come back next week. Yeah, let's pray.